Hello and welcome to this week's edition of The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge Television. Bass Edge Television is now on Wild TV in Canada. We'll be back on the Versus Network starting in January and go all the way through June. This is Outdoors Dan, and I've got my good friend Aaron Martin right alongside. Aaron, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, Dan. We have a really good podcast lined up tonight. We're going to be joining Bass Elite Pro Dave Wolak. And I understand that uh, he qualified for the Classic. Yeah, he just uh, actually just came through on the Opens. Of course, he fished the Elites, but uh, his entry was guaranteed through his performance within the Opens. So congratulations mm. to him. Yeah, that's exciting. All I want to know is, are they going to have hush puppies as hors d'oeuvres there? Or what, what's the deal? Uh, you know, I wish I could say I was on the inside scoop on that, knowing what the uh, hors d'oeuvres are, but I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait with anticipation. I will ask Gary Klein the next time I talk <laughs> to him, because I know he's like me. He likes to eat. That's right. There you go. And then we're also going to visit with Mike Hubert. Now, you say Huppert. I think it's Hubert. I think you're right. I Actually, I think it is. I think I mispronounced. Uh, well, I'm, not, during I, the I'm just... I'm going from, you know, I've got a 11th grade education, so <laughs> sometimes I try to head on on that, you know. There you go. But Mike is the head of the research and development uh, team for FinTech Lures, and folks, you're really going to enjoy that. There's some really new, uh, neat new technology out there, and I know, Aaron, you were pretty impressed with it. Oh, definitely, and, you know, I just was introduced to those and uh, anxious to get my hands on some more of them to really kind of put them through uh, the vigors of testing, so. There you go. Hey, and don't forget, we're also going to give away a listener email question and some great prizes to this week's lucky winners. So let's just get right to it. Let's go. You're listening to The Edge, the official audio program of Bass Edge. Oh, look here. I got one. I got one. Look here. <laughs> I mean, he whacked that football jig. The blades will dictate a lot of times the speed of the retrieve or the depth of that bait. Oh, good fish. Good fish. Did you see him come off that log? Woo, look at that son of a gun, man. That's awesome. You know, you've got to just stay active. Fishing is not easy. Oh, man, that's a toad. This is unbelievable. All right, let's just get cranking on this thing, this thing called the Edge. And, you know, I've gotten a lot of email from listeners on my radio shows that uh, they're checking out the iTunes deal. And uh, I guess they're going to uh, BassEdge.com, too. Correct. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. always nice to hear from people. Yeah, well, people, you know, people who need people. <laughs> they are the luckiest people. <laughs> That's right. Hey, you know what? It's the fall, and we're getting in a transition here uh, where winter's right around the corner. I know where I'm at in Iowa, ice is going to start showing up here pretty quick. And, you know, what? I get this a lot. I'm going to ask you, what are the top baits? For late fall, early winter. You know that is a great question. That's that's one that has actually been uh, kind of darkening our doorsteps as well, Dan. And you know, I really break it down to, to it's a pretty simple philosophy. One of the things that that's happened that we've been really talking about the last few weeks is you know the the decrease in light. And so what happens during the fall slash winter is obviously bass begin. They use that internal clock to know that they have to start feeding. Well, you know, in most lakes, streams, and reservoirs, the most popular and the easiest uh, prey to get to are going to be, you know, something that's, that's, I guess, around the bait fish. So I break it down to I want my baits that are going to mimic uh, the bait fish that are present in each of those types of waters, meaning, Mm -hmm. let's say, a crankbait, a spinnerbait, a jerkbait, even a shaky head, you know, has that resemblance of, of a bait fish pattern. Um, Now, as far as the colors, I take that really a step further. You know, I look for, um, let's say, if the particular lake or body of water has threadfin shad in it, then obviously I'm going to want to utilize colors uh, that are going to fall within that category. 
Um, likewise, as far as what to target with those baits, you know, I'm, I'm going to start shallow first, really up close to the bank, because I do feel until that water really gets down into, you know, into the, the upper 40s, you can still find a lot of fish feeding shallow. So that's where I start. If I don't have success there, then, you know, normally I'll start backing off and, and working a bait that's a little bit deeper in the water, water column. Yeah, you know that photosynthesis, that's some pretty neat stuff, isn't it? It is, it is. I mean, it's just amazing of how they know that, you know, it's time to, to actually start feeding. You would think their appetite uh, is, is something that's going to, you know, dictate that, but uh, they know that if, if they don't feed now and they wait to do that uh, after the water gets too cold based upon their metabolism, you know, chances are they're not going to have the energy nor are they going to feel comfortable to be able to uh, replenish that energy after they chase food. Yeah, see, that was my 11th grade education. It's really not photosynthesis. That's where plants take the energy from the sun and eat. There you go. I knew what, what you meant. What is that photo, thing called? That you, it's uh, it's photo, photo period. what? Period. The photo what is period. It? It's the photo period. Photo period. See, <laughs> I knew there was a photo thing in there somewhere. There you go. Yeah. So, I, yeah, it, you know, and that's in all all animals. I mean, deer, that's the same thing that transitions deer, or deer into going to the uh, does to go into estrus and starts the rut. And... It's the loss of the daylight hours. Right. And, you know, as that, as that progresses, you know, and the water temperature does begin to cool down, then that's when I start slowing the retrieve. You know, for instance, like in a crankbait, mm-hmm. uh, you hear a lot of talk about different types of wobbles, whether it be a narrow wobble, meaning that the, the bait is going to move a little more faster and a little more erratic, uh, something like a shad wrap or a rattle trap. Those are what's considered narrow wobble baits versus, let's say, a wiggle wart type bait or a wide wobble that is going to make really wide gyrations. And the difference is that on a wider wobble, you can really slow that down a little bit, and you don't have to work that so fast. And the reason yeah. why that is important is because, again, uh, the metabolism of, of a fish, they are not going to want to expend the energy trying to track that down. They want an easy meal. Yeah, they get lethargic. Exactly. Absolutely. Ooh, big word. Lethargy, that's right. right. I, I'm telling you, man, my teachers be proud. <laughs> that's right. Hey, you know what? I, it's uh, all good stuff, and you're right. Uh, the winter is here, and, you know, up in my neck of the woods, they're actually going to start dragging those ice houses over and do some ice fishing. And, you know, the presentation there is pretty easy. It's just up and down. Sure. Well, and then there again, you know, the, the vertical presentation is also a big winter slash fall. I like to use it year-round, but especially when, as the winter progresses, you know, just like you do in the northern parts of ice fishing, they do the same thing in the Midwest and to where they will uh, stack up, let's say, on those, those long tapering points. But the main key is if you can find those schools of bait fish, those uh, bass will be somewhere very, very close by, whether it be in them, whether it be under them, you know, they are not going to stray too far away from their food source, which is, in this case, going to be the bait fish. Absolutely. Well, folks, a lot of information right there. We hope you had fun with it and also learned something. We need to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to have Dave Wolak and some other great stuff right here on This Week's Edge. You've got the truck. You've got the toys. Now it's time to get the hitch that gives you more time to play with both. It's the tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. You want options? Select the ball size, adjust the height to level the trailer, or stow it out of the way in just seconds. It's 10,000 towing pounds worth of durability, convenience, and the latest technology that has made B&W famous. The Tow and Stow Receiver Hitch by B&W. Call 1-866-BEST-HITCH. Welcome back to The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge. 
Okay, welcome back on The Edge, and we are joined by BASS Elite Angler and also recent Bassmasters Classic Qualifier, Toyota Yamaha Pro Dave Wolak. Dave, thanks so much uh, for being part of The Edge today. Hey, thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me. It's, and it's, uh, it's great to be here. Before we get into uh, some of the great stuff that we've got to talk about, you recently uh, qualified for the Bassmasters Classic. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm really looking forward to it. It was, uh, it was a tough year for me on the Elite Series, and I kind of made it in the back door there with uh, qualifying through the Open. So you know, I'm just glad to be back in. At, uh, you know, like I said, just missing it on the Elite Series by a, a spot or two, it, it, uh, it was a tough thing to grasp. And uh, to be back in, and, and be back in the springtime again in a, in a cold-water tournament, I feel that's one of my strong suits, so I'm really looking forward to it. Well, and, and that's the unique thing about it is, you know, A, you just barely missed the cut on the elite side, but, you know, you really had your work cut out for you, on, you know, fishing those opens. Obviously, um, you know, you, you didn't get to, to practice as much as what you normally did. I, I can remember, uh, in particular, the Red River tournament. You, you Essentially, you had one day of practice to be able to come in. You know, you finished strong there and then just continued that throughout the, throughout the rest of the year. So congratulations. I mean, that you just have to be exhausted from, from that yeah, year of fishing. Yeah, you know, I, the last couple of years I fished a ton of tournaments each year, and um, I guess, you know, that's sometimes how it works. I, I, I don't know how to explain it better than um, sometimes just plans come together and things work out for you, and sometimes they don't. And on the Elite Series this year, you know, I had a lot of mediocre tournaments, and I had one really bad tournament uh, at Lake Gunnersville where I just had poor decisions, and uh, it really hurt me in the points, and it was tough to recover from that. I think I finished like 91st or something, and, uh, when you do that against that caliber of fishermen, it was really tough. And in the in the opens, there's a ton of great fishermen as well, and I just never seemed to stumble in those. I had things work out just, you know, I mean, in fact, uh, like you said at the Red River, I had one day of practice. I caught one fish in practice in the one day that I had, and it was in a, uh, a backwater, and I figured I'd just go and mess around and fish in there the whole entire tournament, and I just scrapped out a couple limits and, and ended up salvaging that event and having, a you know, a pretty good finish. Uh, there uh, and and going into the final uh, Central Open, it was kind of the same thing. I had kind of a milk run of twenty different things to do, and and it just all worked out for me. And I, you know, I, I don't know how else to say it other than sometimes that's just the way it works out when you know plans come together, and sometimes it could go totally in the opposite direction, and they just don't work out. So uh, I'm very fortunate this year, and and glad to be back in the class. Well, congratulations, and I think that comes down to, you know, decision-making, and, and specifically, as far as what we're going to talk about today, you know, the, there's a decision that, that you make to employ really into your fishing arsenal, and that is the use of, of how you employ braided line, which I find just absolutely fascinating, because I, I think too often we pigeonhole certain line types for just a specific application, but that's not at all the case with, with yourself. That's right. You know, I, I guess I could track that back to uh, probably 2004 or 2005, um, specifically in 2005 in one event. Uh, you know, everybody out there has at one time or another probably used braided line to flip mats because that's the most traditional way to use it because of the, the strength and sensitivity necessary to get a fish out of a, a real heavy mat and a lot of cover with the flipping stick. And I started to uh, incorporate it back in, in, into my arsenal back in about 2005, uh, specifically one event at Lake Norman. There was some schooling fish, and I, I felt that if I got a schooling fish out of the school to the boat as quick as possible, I wouldn't spook the rest of the school, and um, I would have a better opportunity to get another cast in there really quickly and catch them because that's how it was. It was, a, it was a 20, 30 second thing where I had to get them while they were coming up or they were down for an hour. And I, I couldn't really multiply that uh, and capitalize on that 
caliber of fish anywhere else in the lake, um, you know, whether it be fishing docks or whatever, I couldn't catch what I felt was out in those schooling fish because they were just deeper suspended fish that would activate themselves for, like I said, you know, you know, a 30-second period. So I rigged up one rod with, uh, I believe it was back then, it was 30-pound test, but it's about, I think, 8-pound diameter power pro braided line, and, uh, and I was fishing a jerk bait, and I also felt that how aggressively I could work that bait was a big factor of me getting bites. I, I felt like when I threw it out there and I had, you know, complete contact with the bait at all times, being at the jerk, you know, with a jerk bait, it's, you know, I mean, you know, you're pulling a bait sometimes five feet through the water at once. And I felt that if I had contact with that at all times and I could work it like mega aggressively, if a fish hit it and even just touched it, you know, side swiped it or whatever, I was going to get a hook into them. So I, you know, I bumped up my hook, my treble hooks to an extra strong treble hook and I put that braided line on and I will you know, I had one or two fish on regular line. I said, at one point when that school came up, I'm going to put that uh, jerk bait out there with a 30-pound braid. And I ended up doing exactly what I said, getting them out of the school quicker, getting way more bites because I could work the bait a lot more aggressively. And I ended up catching a six-pound fish, which in Lake Norman is a huge one. Sure. And it ended up being like, you know, big fish of the tournament or something like that. And I started, you know, multiplying that across the whole country. Going up north, I started fishing a... You know, the big spinnerbait, like everybody talks about on the Great Lakes, burning on the surface, started fishing that with braided line. I started fishing a jerkbait on uh, Lake Champlain with braided line, working it really aggressively. And a lot of times those smallmouths, their mouths are so hard from eating crayfish and, and uh, being an, an older fish. I mean, a, a, a four-pound smallmouth up, no, up north is sometimes, uh, you know, a 15-year-old fish, and their mouths are really aged and bony, and, and they're a tough fish to get a hook into. And they'll spit your bait a lot. And when I use that braid... I felt like I could just, you know, penetrate their mouth a little bit better. And, you know, there's things that you have to do. You have to, you know, set your drag a little bit lower after you get a hook into them so that you don't rip a hole in their mouth. And there's little, you know, idiosyncrasies about fishing it that, you know, if you go out there and actually try it and, and mess around with all the little things uh, that, that, that you're going to have to change in your, just how your approach is, the, uh, the overall results for me have been better. So, you know, it's, it's definitely something I added to my arsenal and I'm still adding to my arsenal and still kind of, and, uh, you know, playing around with a little bit. Well, to back up on one thing that you said earlier, as far as getting the fish out of out of the school faster on these schooling fish, why is that important? Well, I felt in that particular instance, was, it was for two reasons. I, it, they would come up for, like I said, 30 seconds or so, and that was it. And if I got a bait in there, hooked them, and got them out of there, and the fish in the box, and got another cast out, I could sometimes get two or three in that period of time when they would come up without spooking them and okay. they were really really spooky i mean and if you played a fish around there and you're you know with 10 pound or 12 pound mono on a on a jerk bay you can't horse a fish in that's in three pound class like immediately and if fish is swimming around there with a bait in his mouth they kind of spook the school and they go down whereas so you think they're I, educated as far as what's what's taking place then? yeah what's going on exactly i mean uh that school of bait fish would come up for a couple seconds and they go up and blast them and and they kind of just go dormant for about an hour or two and uh, I'd have to pedal around there and, and try to catch them otherwise, and it wasn't that easy. I mean, it was like they were either schooling and feeding or they weren't, and that was in that particular instance. But I, I did the same thing at Lake Amistad in that last open. I used, and that's, you know, gin clear water. Probably at this point, everybody that watches bass fishing or is in tune with it gets, you know, a look at Lake Amistad here and there because of the phenomenal fish that are in there. And that lake is really, really clear in, in a lot of spots. And uh, I was fishing super clear water, 50 feet of water. The fish were coming up schooling. And I had and many times, you know, co-anglers that were thrown into the same school of fish, and uh, I would be catching more. And I was catching more, I feel, for that same reason. I could work 
a jerk bait or whatever you know bait I was using in that school uh, way more aggressively, and I was in contact with the bait at all times because of the because of the zero stretch sensitivity of braided line. So it's not just something. In other words, you don't just employ this technique in in stained or dirty water. You're you're using braid uh, even in crystal clear water. Yeah, a lot of times. I mean, uh, I, I I fished a, a jig. It's pretty slow, actually, up at uh, Lake Champlain in that FLW series that I finished second on this year, and I probably caught 95% of my fish on on 50-pound braid. So are you uh, using braid all the way down to the lure, or do you use any kind of a a leader? In in those instances, I was using no leader, braid all the way down to the lure, because up north, um, zebra mussels have taken over in a lot of the lakes, and they're like razor-sharp edges, and uh, 20-pound mono, a lot of times, you get a lot of abrasion on it, and, and it'll cut it. And uh, braid, for me, has been better in getting those fish out of the grass because in grass, a lot of times the zebra mussels will go and, you know, go right up the stalks of the grass to see zebras all the way up. And so even if you hook a fish in the grass, it goes sideways through the grass and you're going to cut your line because it's cutting five feet up your line. It's not necessarily right at your knot or anything like that. So um, I started incorporating braid up there. And, I mean, I guess if I was to talk to people, I'd say the one best thing that I've noticed about it as far as it working in, in scenarios is it works better in scenarios where it's a reaction type of strike. Anything that comes down, you know, like, for instance, with the jig, it was still a fastball type of situation, or a jerkbait is coming by them really quickly. Or another way I've definitely incorporated into my arsenal is using a, a shallow-running crankbait with a real, you know, limber rod, um, still, you know, a glass, a glass cranking rod, but using the 20-pound braid throwing it around shallow wood, because a lot of times those fish that are posted up right up underneath a piece of wood that's shallow in stained water or whatever, and you have that crankbait run by, they'll come out, grab that, and go right under that piece of wood, and I'd break them off. And um, I started incorporating braid, and I got a lot of those fish to the boat. So, and, uh, so it's because little... of the, the re- in the reaction-type situations that they're really not keying in on, on, on visibly seeing the line, I guess, that that's they're just right. coming out I, reacting I guess, to you know, it. That's the one, you hear that a lot. Well, I'm worried about them seeing the line. I'm worried, uh, you know, I, I feel that 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 is a big factor in fishing. I'm not saying that I do, but I'm saying that other people have told me that. And I said, well, if that's the case, then just think about it as if it's coming by so quickly, they don't really get a chance to see it. And, um, you know, I learned a long time ago in fishing, and I sometimes this isn't always the case because I'm, you know, I'm not shy about me going out there and fishing a shaky head either with light line. I'm just saying that I learned a long time ago in fishing. If you could up the line strength and you have a better chance of getting a fish to the boat, especially in tournament situations, I'll go ahead and do that, and I'll sacrifice maybe getting 10% less bites or whatever because uh, we're fishing for money out there a lot of times, and uh, it's just heartbreaking to lose a fish. Well, and, and likewise for the rec- recreational angler. You know, if, if you're going to get the bite, you want to get them in the boat, you know, so that yeah. you can take a picture of it and enjoy it, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know as well as I do, if you go out there and you're, you probably would get more bites or just as many bites fishing 10-pound test flipping grass as you would fishing the braid, but you're just not going to get them out of there. And it's, it's, I almost up my line strength for either, whether it be diameter or switching from mono to braid, uh, as high as I could go, depending on the situation and still getting bit. And if I continue to get as many bites, or even, like I said, I'll sacrifice 10% less bites in order to get that fish to the boat. And it's, uh, you know, it's worked out for me. And I, and I, I really got to have a better feel for a lot of baits, uh, working and getting strikes and things like that with the braided line because of the sensitivity of it. So to backtrack one second, as far as when you talk about uh, keeping, for instance, in the jerkbait or the crankbait or spinnerbait situation, keeping that bait in contact, 
Can you elaborate a little bit on, on what you mean by that? Yeah, uh, that with a jerkbait especially, I, you know, say you go up on Lake Erie and you're taking these just as far as you could possibly cast casts out there and you're working the bait really aggressively. A lot of times those smallmouth want that bait moving, I mean continuously moving, starting side to side, and I could feel every little pull of that rod, I could feel that bait doing something. And when I, I felt like when I had mono, especially on long cast, um, I would I would be pulling the rod tip, but with all that line out there and the bait being way out there and maybe a, a bigger build bait or a big heavy spinner bait that you're trying to, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even feel the fish hit it. A lot of times I would see a big spinner bait with 20-pound mono coming in in the distance, and I'd see a smallmouth come up, up and strike individually, and I wouldn't even feel anything. But with braid, they touch it, and that zero stretch, that super sensitivity of it, you not only see it, but you'd also feel it. And the same with a jerkbait. A jerkbait, it, it, I felt like I just always had contact with the bait because it's like if you flip into a mat and you're at short distance with that, with that braid, and that as soon as that bait flops through that mat, you feel, I mean, this vibration goes through your whole body. It's like you know you're getting bit. Sure. And I felt that that, you know, it translated into a lot of casting baits as well. And as long as you get the right mix of the right rod and, and uh, the right pound test of braid, I mean, you don't want to be trying to fish 80-pound, 80 85-pound braid on a, on a jerk bait or anything like that. You go down to the smaller diameter braids, and it just becomes a matter of uh, a lot of, you know, a very sensitive line and zero stretch. Well, and I can certainly see, you know, where that transference of that sensitivity, you know, up to the angler itself, because how many times have you been, you know, throwing a jerk bait, especially when you're not necessarily, you know, just, just ripping it, but all of a sudden you just notice, you know, the line just takes off, and, yeah, and that fish has struck a long time ago, you know? Yeah, exactly. I, I, in fact, for all you guys out there listening to this, someday go out and fish a crankbait on one of your favorite crankbait points or crank, favorite crankbait rock piles or spots or whatever it may be, and put that light uh, braid on that, uh, either sometimes even I go down to that four pound diameter, 15 pound test braid yep. and I'll fish that on a crankbait over an area that I would typically fish with, with mono on a big plug or something like that. And, and I'll, and you could feel every little rock, every little, everything when you're coming over. And again, you know, if it becomes, you know, a scenario where you think you might not get as many bites because you're using braid, um, then, you know, you don't have to do it. But in, in terms of learning something quickly, and that's what we have to do on the professional tour out there. We have a two and a half days of practice period. I could cast that stuff all day, and I feel like I'm just always in contact with the bottom, always in contact with what the bait is doing. And many times I'll adjust back. If I don't think I'm, like I said, if, it's, if the percentage is I'm getting not 10% less bites, if I'm getting 25% less bites, I'll be the first one to tell you, sure, I'll go back tomorrow. But, uh, you know, in many scenarios, I've just learned a lot more because I'm feeling the bottom better, or feeling what the bait is doing better, feeling a fish strike it when I wouldn't have felt it in the past. And uh, a crankbait is a really good way to get a, a different look at it. Go on, you know, someplace where you know there's one rock on this point or something and fish that until you feel that rock, and you'll feel every single thing that that bait is doing on the bottom. Well, so, and obviously in your case, I mean, that's, that's proved, you know, tremendous dividends by employing that. Yeah. Uh, yep. You know, in our last, last closing minute here, can you, you had mentioned about, you know, once you get the fish on, about the importance of needing to potentially back that drag off. Is that something that you do after the fish strikes? Yes. What I do is I typically, uh, just like you're holding a bait casting reel normally, um, I'll keep my, my thumb actually with the hand that I'm reeling the, the actual reel with right there. So I'll set the hook, and as I'm, like, back in my hook set, 
I'll catch up with the fish and I'll make sure that the fish is still, you know, I don't have, I'm not giving them any slack by doing it. And I'll just thumb that reel, uh, that drag, I'm sorry, backwards and uh, give them just a little bit of a slack. And I've gotten, again, overdoing this for the last couple of years and how much I fish, I got that exact feel. I need to go back about three notches. And once I go back three notches, all that does is give that fish the ability, if he makes one of those quick power surges or power runs right next to the boat, you're not going to tear the bait out of his mouth. You're just going to let him pull. And instead of him coming to the boat green, he's going to kind of wear himself out a little bit by playing around. And, and I got to just, you know, got the feel of exactly how much I need to back off that so I don't rip a treble out. And with a jig or anything like that, I don't do it as much because it's a big hook and I'll sooner just horse him. And I'm in, in, in those cases using 50 pound braid most of the time. But in that 20 pound braid scenario with a treble hook, back it off about three notches, play them out a little, but it's the difference in getting that big hook into that hard mouth that you wouldn't have got in with mono. Sure. So. Well, and I know for a fact, I mean, that, that is one of the applications that I've just started, you know, matter of fact, this year using on, on the spinning rod uh, with, you know, using for the drop shot. And uh, I mean, it's just tremendous. It makes a tremendous difference uh, just in that application. So I'm excited. You know, you and I are going to be able to spend some time uh, in 2008, fishing together down on the Chattahoochee, is this something that uh, that we might get to see a little bit of? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I, you know, I just looked at that briefly of what that river looks like, and it looks like it's a lot of wood and shallow cover, and being a river that usually puts them shallow. So, I'm going to try to mess around with that a little, and hopefully, we could learn a little on the show as well. Absolutely. Well, Dave, unfortunately, uh, great information, but we are out of time. I, you know, just thanks so much uh, for being part of the Edge, and thanks for the great information. Oh, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Well, you know, Aaron, I got to tell you, I'm noticing some consistency or a trend here over the last three or four podcasts. I'm hearing more of these pros talking about braided lines. And, and I think you you actually did make a good point when you said the word trend. I don't know. I do actually consider, you know, baits, lines, terminal tackle, all those things. There are definite trends, but I also think it comes with, you know, education. Um, and the media obviously is very good about putting that information in front of anglers to be able to make those choices. But, you know, it wasn't too long ago, that many years ago, to where fluorocarbon was the, the greatest thing since sliced bread. Now, because of braid and it being out on the market and being used in the field more and more, people are starting to find new applications. But I thought Dave brought just a fascinating, uh, you know, new way to utilize braid uh, versus just the traditional sense of, of really what it's marketed to do. Well, I knew one of the properties of braided line has always been its toughness. You don't have as much loss or you don't, you don't lose as much uh, hook set as you do with a regular monofilament or maybe some fluorocarbon. But uh, I, I, really start to, I really am starting to hear more and more people really uh, fall in love with braided line. Yeah, you know, this year is, is really marks the, the first year of me personally uh, really switching to braided line outside of just the normal, you know, grass application. You know, I went to really starting to, to put a fluorocarbon leader on the end of it tied with that uninot, but you know Dave takes it one step further. He actually runs braid all the way down, you know, to the crankbait or spinnerbait or jerkbait, uh, mm. which you know, as seen from the from the interview, you know, he really feels that it doesn't hamper, um, you know, a fish's willingness to to strike the lure. And well, so, I, you know, I'll be honest with you, and again, I, I am not a professional fisherman. I, I I've said that many times, and that's just my opinion, but. I've I've used braided line just straight right on my rattle traps, and you know I just use a polymer knot, tie it off, and I always catch fish. Right, 
And, you know, that I think it's as much psychological and, and like he advised, get out there and, and take a bait that you have success with. Take it to an area to where you know there's a rock or stump or some cover and just feel that bait, that crankbait, you know, coming over that. And just, you know, he's, as he put it so well, witness firsthand the added sensitivity that you get from using that braid and, and being able to stay in contact with that lure and feeling it longer. But, you know, one of the things, how about that comment that he made about, you know, being able to, with braid to get the fish out of the of those schooling fish that he was talking about, of being able to get that fish out of that school quicker so that it doesn't spook the school before they go back down. Absolutely. So, yeah. Well, you got more strength there. Exactly. And, yeah. and, you know, and it doesn't stretch, and so you can put a little more pressure. You know, like he said, after the fish is hooked, he does go, and he has it down to a science now to where he backs off his drags about three clicks so that it doesn't, you know, rip the hook out of its mouth because that is one of the things with there being no stretch and just the sheer strength of that. You can actually, on a crankbait, you know, pull that hook out of the mouth. But uh, bottom line is I think we will see a whole new evolution of the braided line category come into into play uh, in the coming years. Yeah, you want a prediction? I'm actually thinking that we're going to see less, more, or less of a density of a braided line to give it more of a, a sleeker appearance in the water. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I or, can or less volume of, uh, however you want to say it. But I, I think that's going to be the new uh, the new trend next year. Well, I know I'm definitely going to you know start using it on more applications. It just makes yeah, sense. Right. It does make sense to me. Hey, folks, we need to take another break. When we come back, it's my favorite part of the edge, and that's the product giveaway and listener section, and we'll be right back. When I'm fishing in a tournament, time is critical. I need fast, easy access to my lures. My Cook's Go-To Tackle System keeps my bait organized, tangle-free, and within easy reach. It installs in minutes under any deck lid, maximizing the storage space of my boat. And its durable construction lasts even through the harshest conditions. Get organized with Cook's Tackle System by calling 1-888-390-8780 or online at cooksgoto.com. All right, we're back, and it's time to award this week's lucky winner, John from Oceanside, California. And, John, I'm going to say congratulations just living in Oceanside. I've been there. I was there when I was in the military. So there you go. He's going to win a complete line of Mother's Car and Marine. You know, that is so ironic. Marine, that's where Camp Pendleton is, Oceanside. Did you see what happened just there, Aaron? It was meant to be, right? It was fate. Marine Care, Camp Pendleton, congratulations, John. Those are products that work great on the interior and exterior of your boat. And it's time for this week's question, which comes from another Jeff, or Jeff rather, in another California area. And Jeff wants to know what, Aaron? He wants to know, which really ties into our earlier discussion, is there a particular color that works best in fall-slash-winter water? Absolutely. Uh, Chartreuse, hands down. I like pink. Do you really? You laugh about that, but actually uh, uh, one of the, you know, X-Rap makes a, it's a jerkbait. Mm-hmm. They make it in, I call it Mary Kay pink, but it's actually it's bright pink. <laughs> and uh, smallmouth, eat it up. But anyway, we're, st- we're straying from that, so uh, I- I'm sure you got a kick out of that, Dan. I did. I, I just, I, you know, it, with you in pink, it just cracked me up. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, okay. But no, in the, in the fall and winter, again, back to our earlier discussion at the beginning, um, you know, is going to be solely focused on bait fish. And if, if the lake has blueback herring or tilapia, um, you know, really what I try and do is match the skirt or the body color 
of my spinner baits, jerk baits, and crank baits, um, you know, in those. Likewise, you know, if it's let's say predominantly like they have so many places out west, the rainbow trout. Mm-hmm. And really, I've started throwing a rainbow trout spinner bait even uh, in the south and in the Midwest because it works so well. Or the thread fin shad, you know, that's where the concentration is going to be. But I really have better luck in the wintertime fishing the clearest water uh, that I can find. And the reason being is I feel once that their metabolism or, you know, let's say if they're repressed goes down, you know, I just, I know that I have a better chance of attracting strikes from a greater distance and, and really feel that the color and the flash of the bait plays a really strong role in um, bass striking the lure. Well, I think that's a good methodology because if you look at trout fishermen, they've done that for centuries. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, and unfortunately I'm not a very good trout fisherman and they're to me, they're too hard to catch. So, anyway. well, I mean, they, you know, I mean, they honestly break it down and the entomology of it. I mean, they know what insects are in those streams, and they correlate their flies with that color and shape. And that's basically what you know what you're talking about with bass. Right. And it wasn't too long ago, you know, when we had, I think, a few weeks ago, when Jamie Cyphers had made the comment, especially out in the West, the reason why they're a little more advanced on some of their lure designs is because of the pressure and just given the clear water that you know you mm-hmm. have to have more detail. Um, on those baits. But, you know, I also, I, I fish jigs in the winter and the fall, and again, merely matching the color with the crawdads, which, you know, you can never go wrong with, with your traditional browns and green, and then, of course, the black and blue. However, what I do feel is, is more important on changing on a jig, and that is uh, the weight of the jig. Normally, I switch to a lighter jig, uh, maybe like a 5 sixteenths. Uh, to a quarter ounce for that slower fall so that the bass don't have to try and catch up with it, but also a less aggressive action on the trailer. So to give you a comparison, maybe, for instance, there's a trailer that's called the Pocket Chunk that has um, you know some appendages on it that really, when it falls through the water, they're very, very aggressive. They make a real erratic action. Instead of using that, I'll maybe switch to like a zoom, a uh, little critter crawl to where all it has is just some pinchers that are dangling there that really don't put off a tremendous amount of action. It's a more subtle bait, more compact bait, and uh, again, it just makes a very, very easy meal uh, for the bass to get without having to chase, you know, and burn up a lot of energy uh, pursuing the lure. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's all good stuff, and you know what, folks? We want to hear from you. Don't forget to send in a question or comment, and you will be in the running for the weekly drawing. Simply send an email to podcast at BassEdge.com with your name and address in the body of the email. We need to take our final break. When we come back, we're going to talk about lures again. We're actually going to be visiting with Mike Hubert, and he is with FinTech, and we're going to learn all about that when we come back. Give any type of boat the edge with MegaWare Keel Guard. It's simple to install, and we can now beach our boat anywhere. If you own a boat, you need one of these. MegaWare Keel Guard protects the keel of your boat from sand abrasion, from underwater obstructions, even concrete boat ramps. Kit started under $140. And best yet, it's guaranteed to keep on protecting for life. Thanks, MegaWare KeelGuard. Thanks, MegaWare KeelGuard. All right, welcome back to The Edge. And joining us today is Mike Hubbard, the head of research and development from FinTech Tackle Corporation. Mike, uh, thanks so much for being part of The Edge. I'm glad I could join you. You know, Mike, one of the things that I think... Uh, all of us like to talk about is is our jigs and you know there's there's only so many ways to break down a jig but before we get into some of the innovative things that you've done uh within your title shot jig line would like to just spend a little bit of time you know how in the world did you get into starting uh fintech and get into you know starting a tackle company 
Well, Aaron, as you know, there's been a lot of time out in the boat and have a lot of time to ponder. And uh, this is where a lot of the ideas are spawned in the patent part side of it. There's probably more patents filed in the fishing industry than any other industry. So everybody always tries to come up with something unique, and I do a lot of reading. And, and decipher what, what people are asking for, anglers are asking for as far as, you know, kind of what they need they're having the with a particular bait or whatever. And, and I just kind of decipher what they're trying to Trying to use, in other words. Yes, and uh, we search and develop ways to improve the existing product or come up with something new, you know, fill that void. Well, and I think one of the the unique things about your situation, you know, really it, it dates back to 1991, right? I mean, that's really the inception of fintech. That's correct. You know, and, and unlike, I think, a lot of us to where your, I guess, love and passion is, is more in the lure design. You know, really, I think you're a, you're a walleye fisherman by heart, but... Really, you get into to figuring out how to make baits better. That's correct. I uh, that's that's my love of the industry. I enjoy it very much, and and uh, and that's kind of my forte as far as I like the research and development part of the company. So, when you brought about fintech, was it uh, you know did it start out targeting the bass market? No, actually, it was the walleye market. I uh, came up with a jig called the knuckleball jig. And basically, it, you know, I took all the jigs that were out there, the short shank, the long shank, the open gaps, and, and I kind of put it all into one jig. And, you know, a lot of, like, the dealers and people that use them, they call it a no-brainer jig because you really can't fish it wrong, and it's a unique jig, and uh, file the patent on it. So, you know, how did that, uh, you know, starting out in the walleye market, how did that transfer over into, into the bass market? Well, actually, some of my friends were bass fishermen, and uh, they had some complaints, and, and I started looking at how to improve the bass jig. And basically, you know, every jig that was out there, it was either had like an offset hook so you could rig it up weedless, and they had the bass, the brush guard, you know, that was kind of bulky and didn't penetrate real well. And I started looking at the jig and figured out that there's got to be a better way of positioning that plastic up on top instead of down on the bottom and get rid of that big brushy weed guard on there. Well, I think every bass fisherman, I know certainly with my case, I mean, I love fishing a jig and probably any bass fisherman out there, you know, will oftentimes have a jig at least rigged up ready to go on the front deck of their boat. Um, You know, one of the things that I think that I am very particular on and most bass fishermen are is, you know, you have that fiber weed guard that protrudes from the head and, you know, trying to get that cut and get the, the right stiffness to where you're not getting snagged, but yet to where it's not too stiff to where that the, the bass, you know, clamps down on that. And the first thing that they feel is that weed guard sticking in the roof of their mouth. How does the title shot jig, you know, differ from that? Actually, we like you say, we eliminated the weed, you know, the brush guard. So that's more of a smaller, it can penetrate easier, you know, grass mats and stuff. But basically what we did was uh, we came up with that, with the retainer system a flexible retainer system so that you could text pose a hook, a wide gap hook. The amount of work that went into that retainer <laughs> um, was a considerably a, a lot of time and money spent into that. It looks just like a piece of plastic with <laughs> right. cones on it, but <laughs> we originally started out, you know, with, with the small cones all the way up, but it, it seemed to hold, but didn't hold good enough. Mm-hmm. And then when we went with the bigger cones, then we couldn't get the plastic on it. And so I thought, well, we might as well 
just do a series of small cones, and I stuck a big cone on there, and that was the ticket that kind of like secured the plastic. It, it allows you to slide the plastic on fairly easy, and then that last big cone, once you push it over there, it just kind of secures the bait. Well, and to create a, a visual for our listeners, you know, and, until they have the opportunity to go to go see this for themselves, I mean, really, when I look at this jig, it seems it's kind of one of those situations to, like, why didn't I think of that? And But yet the research and development that went into it, because really what is happening is instead of that, in place of that fiber weed guard, and correct me if I'm wrong, there is the retainer system that, you know, protrudes out at maybe a, a 30 or 40 degree angle, something like that, like a normal weed guard would. But you're literally able to to thread the the trailer up onto that. And then, like you say, text pose that that uh, trailer basically onto the hook where it creates it totally weedless, but yet it allows the trailer to be, you know, kind of at that angle to where it's staying off, off the bottom. So I think it's actually getting, you know, better exposure to the fish. Oh, absolutely. The, the head design kind of comes into play, too, as if you head kind of comes under the bait a little bit, so it gives it its stand-up feature so that the weight eliminates the jig from twisting. Mm-hmm. You know, where you got a little bit of weight below the plastic, but yet the eyelet is embedded into the head so that it, you know, no weeds hangs up on the jig, you know. And by text posing it too, you completely, you know, enclose the the hook area. So even on a on a you know on a brush guard type bass jig, you know, even though it's weedless, mm-hmm. it, it can tumble in in the grass, and, and weeds still can get up around inside the hook gap area, you know, the bend of the hook. Whereas the title shot is completely secured off once you text pose it. It's totally secured, you know, that area there. So not even the fuzzy stuff gets hung up in there. So is this a jig that you can use in grass but also around any type of cover? Um, yes. It, you know, it, it actually we're coming out with a football head with the same type of system. But um, as far as, you know, fishing wood, grass, uh, it's a great jig for even fishing with the kids and stuff because they can just throw it right up on shore and drag it into the water. And basically the fish kind of hook themselves a lot sure. of times because it's such an efficient system. You know, and and speaking of, of, of the, the design of this, you have five total patents, I think, under, under the FinTech label. But you've also, you know, you're coming out with a football head, but you also have this, to me, just a revolutionary shaky head system that you're just in the process of introducing. Yeah, the shaky was kind of one of our pro staff uh, personnel, Dave Wallach, um, kind of worked with us on this, and uh, he wanted a, a kind of an ultra light shaky head. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the shaky heads, as the heads get bigger, they make the hooks bigger, and, and he wanted to, you know, and it kind of overpowers the jig, you know, because of the weight of the hook. Right. But the thing is, is when the head gets bigger, it starts eating up the gap. And if you put any type of a fixed retainer behind that shaky head, um, you don't have much of a gap area there. So we kind of did a collapsible retainer that totally exposes the gap of the hook. So really you're using the retainer to to hold the the bait at just a a fixed uh, position, but yet you're still maintaining the gap on the hook to create you know, the bait to be able to stand up off the bottom as well as to create a, a larger gap. That way when the fish does bite down on it, it's going to, to ensure a better hook set? Oh, absolutely. It totally opens that gap completely open. Yeah, it, it the retainer itself is made, too, so that when you do set the hook, it holds the plastic real well. Once you 
complete the hook, you know, embed the hook into the piece of plastic, it kind of backs it up so that, you know, so when you do set the hook, you get you know, an awesome hook set. It just releases the plastic and allows the hook to come into play real easy without destroying the piece of plastic, you know, like you would have on a, like, a pigtail screw-type retainer. Right. So it kind of allows it to release without destroying the piece of plastic and, and allows the hook point to come into play so you get some really good hook sets. So, Mike, in our in our last closing minute, how soon will will those actually hit the market? Um, they should be ready to go here in the next month or so. You know, we're we're actually manufacturing them right now. It's just a matter of getting them packaged and get them on the market. So we're looking probably about two months. Well, that's probably two months that can't come soon enough for some of us, I'm sure. But uh, you know, unfortunately, Mike, we are out of time. But how can how can we get in touch with you and find out more about about your products? Do you have a website or a telephone number? Yep, our website is www.jigfish.com, and our phone number is 715-273-5740. Well, Mike, I so much appreciate your time, and it's it's always nice to be able to talk to somebody that takes really the research and development of, of fishing lures to a new level. Thanks so much for your time today on The Edge. Okay, thanks, Aaron. Well, that was really, really interesting. And, folks, I'm going to tell you, if that interview didn't sell you, I want you to just do one thing. Go to www.jigfish.com and look at the detail on these lures and the design. It is something, that it's, to me, it's something I've never seen before. And I don't know if Mike really uh, did justice to the uniqueness of the design here. No, he, I, you know, I mean, that is one of the things that uh, he's a very humble person, but he's also highly, highly intelligent with him being, you know, he holds the guy holds five patents, so to mm-hmm. him, uh, this comes natural. It seems very easy, and the beauty of it is, Dan, is when you look at that that jig, and for instance, this new shaky head that's coming out. Um, you know, it's something that's so simple. It's like, man, why didn't I think of that? But mm-hmm. yet, he will tell you that the hours and the dollars that was spent on just designing that jig, um, you know, it, I think it really speaks volume for what they're willing to put into um, making sure that you're going to have success on the water. Well, and, you know, you already mentioned the shaky head, but don't forget that knuckleball jig because that design in itself is the neatest thing I've seen in 20 years of fishing. Yep. The, you know, the knuckleball was really that, that's what put him on the map. Uh, he actually licensed then in turn licensed that to, uh, to Mustad. Uh, that was his first patent that he came out with, uh, you know, specifically targeted uh, at the walleye market that he, you know, transcended over into kind of the bass market. And, you know, it's, I, I hate to even say this, but, you know, I'm anxious to get my hands on the, on the new shaky head and then also some more of these jigs. I've literally only, only thrown uh, his jigs just a couple times and just seeing how they work, uh, to me, it just makes sense. But uh, I'm anxious yeah. to see what they do over the long period of time. Yeah, and folks, even the eye design where you tie the line on, it's not a normal eyelet. It's actually part of the head. Right, exactly. They've got it molded into where the weight of that jig is actually underneath the bait so that it stands up a little bit more. Uh, you know, you couple that with uh, the bait retainer that fits on there and allows you to, what he calls, text pose that trailer on there to where you don't have that weed fiber guard that's sticking out. When the bass mm-hmm. do clamp down on that, that's the first thing they feel is that fiber guard. You know, this just, just makes so much more sense. Yeah, I think the bass are going to evil eat that lure better. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally, think your bite's totally. definitely going to be, don't you think the bite's going to be stronger on no that? No question, and I, I, have, I have witnessed that firsthand. Well, I just think that's neat. Hey, and real quickly, before we wrap this up, the shaky head, they actually have, that. that is one of the neatest designs because it's different from the other shaky heads on the market. 
it is different. And like I said, I'm, I'm basically going off of right now of, of what I have seen. Uh, I have not got to fish with it, but in talking with Mike, the, the theory there, again, instead of, um, you know, normally if, if you want to increase the weight of the shaky head, uh, you have to not only increase the diameter or the size of the hook, but which what that does is that adds weight to the bait, so it is not going to stand up at near of a sharp as sharp of an angle off the bottom. Which again, that's one of the you know predominant uh, advantages to a shaky head is that it stands up off the bottom. But the other mm-hmm. thing that it does is when you increase the weight, you have to increase the length of the hook, which ultimately closes down on the gap. Again, reducing you know the the angle that it comes off the bottom of, of being able to stay up in further up into the strike zone. I should say so. What his design has done with this, I guess, flexible bait retainer, it doesn't matter what bait you're using. You know, it is going to move with the bait. Again, it keeps it uh, the bait up at the top of, of towards the head so that it doesn't bunch up down on the on the uh, the bell of the hook to where it's going to prevent you know strike and uh, essentially losing fish. So I, I, there is a tremendous amount of technology, even though it looks so simple. There's a tremendous amount of thought uh, and research and development that has went into that. Yeah, and folks, again, if you want to see this, just the website is easy. It's www.jigfish.com, and you'll see exactly what we're talking about. I can't believe it, but we're out of time again, Aaron. It does fly by, and I feel like, you know, each week I try and talk faster and faster so that we can get through all the stuff, but it just never works out that way. No, well, I tell you, you only get so much time. It's crazy. But, you know, next week we'll have another great podcast, plenty of interviews, and once again we'll be giving away some more great prizes. In the meantime, be sure to visit us at www.bassedge.com. That's our official website. For Mr. Aaron Martin, for everyone out there, this is Outdoors Dan. We'll catch you next time right here on The Edge. This week's edition of Bass Edges, The Edge, has been brought to you by B&W Trailer Hitches, Cook's Tackle Management Systems, Locker Bar Boat Security Systems, and MegaWare Keel Guard. For more information on Bass Edge, including our television show, training materials, e-newsletter, and podcast, please visit www.bassedge.com.